1: Well Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Ed Wasserman, Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism. Uh, let me start by asking you to turn off your uh, phones. Now, turn off means when it says "on, <laughs> it means "off. This is one of the new wrinkles in the uh, Apples training us to use their technology better. It's silence mode off" means that the ringer is on. We don't want that. OK, so As a dean of a uh, communications school, this kind of mastery of advanced technology is kind of part of the job. Um, Thank you very much. Welcome to a stellar evening. Um, This event is sponsored by the UC Berkeley 11th Hour Food and Farming Fellowships. Um, That is a program that Michael Pollan and Malia Wolin, the director of the program, put together uh, in 2013. Um, with the support of the 11th Hour Project, which is a philanthropic initiative headed by Wendy Schmidt, also a, a distinguished graduate of the journalism school, as is Malia Wolin. Uh, so a shout out to the 11th Hour Foundation uh, and Sarah Bell, a close associate of Wendy, who's with us tonight, I hope. Sarah, are you here? On her way. On her way. Okay, en route. Um, so be nice to her when you see her because we eleventh uh, hour has been very good to us and to the uh, eleventh uh, to the food and farming fellowships and to the School of Journalism. Uh, this fellowship provides funding, training, and editorial support for print and audio journalists who are reporting on stories related to food and agriculture. Nearly seventy fellows have gone through the program since two thousand and thirteen. Uh, their stories have reached millions of readers and viewers through national outlets, including the New York Times Magazine, NPR, Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, 99% Invisible, and many more. Uh, Now, our host this evening will be Michael Pollan. Michael holds the night chair in science journalism at the Graduate School of Journalism. Uh, Michael, I need hardly tell you, is one of the world's most uh, admired and influential writers of nonfiction. Uh, for the past thirty some odd years, his books and articles helped spark a worldwide revolution in our understanding of food and its future. More, most recently, uh, his newest book, *How to Change Your Mind*, is helping transform the way we look at psychedelics and their use. Uh, one can only wonder what next complex and nettlesome question. Michael's going to tackle Uh, my own. I am curious actually about death I would like him to do a story on death myth in reality do a book on that Uh, and I know I don't think it has it may not have motion picture potential, but uh, I'll certainly read it Uh, Michael will be playing a supporting role tonight to our guest of honor He is the editor co-founder and co-owner of a newspaper that I'll bet that none of you have read and few of you have heard of which is the Storm Lake Times. Uh, twice a week it serves 3,000 subscribers in northwest Iowa um, and uh, it was founded in 1990 by Art and his brother John. Uh, Art is the editor, John is a publisher, uh, Art's wife Dolores is a photographer and son Tom is a or the reporter. Um, Art's own specialty is editorial writing. Now I have to say, just the personal aside, I started my career in daily journalism as a reporter in a small paper in another region of the heartland, uh, Casper, Wyoming, which I imagine has some cultural affinities with rural Iowa, and that it's far from the ocean, and there are uh, white Republicans as far as the eye can see. Uh, I can tell you... Um, that all those things Americans tell themselves about this deep value we place on dissent and independent expression is about as truthful as the uh, business we tell ourselves about liberty and justice for all. Um, people in this part of the world, that part of the world, take words very seriously. They use fewer of them, and they place a great deal of weight on them. So you need to watch what you say. Uh, So for Art Cullen's tiny paper to survive while he uh, takes the liberty of pointing out the hypocrisy and foolishness of local officials and the destructive environmental effects of the policies they champion, all for a community of 10,000 at a time when the local press is vanishing, is an accomplishment worthy of national recognition, which is what the Pulitzer board thought. Um, Now every year the Pulitzer overseers meet uh, to decide on the awards. They take a few minutes out from their usual uh, practice, which is awarding Pulitzer Prizes to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and nowadays the New Yorker Magazine, and they take a moment to recognize quality publications of little renown. Usually it's in there uh, in the outback, and often uh, the awards come as a backhanded recognition of the fact that a particular community was devastated by a hurricane, earthquake, volcanic eruption, fire, or flood. But sometimes the award is given for clarity and courage of the journalism, as it was in 2017 for the Storm Lake Times when Art Cullen received the Pulitzer in editorial writing. I encourage you to check out Art's work, it's archived in the Pulitzer website. When I read it, I what I found was it wasn't just a collection of well-reported, closely-argued essays. Uh, I was struck by something I didn't expect to see, and I don't expect to see in passionate writing, and that is kindness. Um, no matter how thoroughly Art disapproved of what he found people had done and how cavalierly they had ignored his inquiries, uh, he treated them with a courtesy and compassion uh, that I find unusual and and especially uh, praiseworthy, and maybe it's those qualities as much as the rigor of his analysis that makes his prose so truly persuasive. Uh, So it's a great honor now to turn this over to Michael Pollan and Art Cullen who will come up and you will have an opportunity, I believe the format will be when you're through talking, uh, you will open it up to questions and we'll have a microphone. Please wait for the microphone to come to you before you speak because we're recording all of this. So thank you very much. Enjoy the evening. Thank you. It's very nice of you. Thanks.
2: Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much, Ed. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, this should be an interesting evening. And uh, uh, I think it's going to provide insight into several different things that we're all interested in, including what's going to happen on Monday night when the Iowa caucuses take place. Um, But I want to start with a little housekeeping, and and specifically to take this opportunity, um, since Ed will be stepping down as dean at the end of this semester, to publicly express my gratitude to him for his leadership, his support, his... uh, It was interesting, he was talking about kindness, uh, his all-around decency and menschiness uh, these past few years. So please join me in thanking Ed Wasserman for his... his And um, I also want to thank Julie Hirano, who, who you've seen racing around with microphones. She'll be. Uh, uh, she helped us set up this event and got out the word to you. Uh, and Malia Wallen, uh, who directs the uh, fellowship and was uh, whose idea this was actually to uh, bring us here together to meet Art. So Art Cullen, welcome to Berkeley. Well, thank you, Mike. Yeah, your first time here.
3: Yes, uh, first time west of Omaha. (Laughter)
2: Um, so, we're going to start out um, just to give you a, a little map. Uh, we're going to start out talking about journalism and some of the challenges of local journalism today. And then I want to move in and talk a little bit about agriculture and the farm vote. And then we'll move into a full fledged uh, discussion of, of politics. Uh, and I'm really here, eager to hear what your sense is, uh, what's likely to happen on Monday, and your own endorsement. Uh, but we'll wait. Don't, you know, okay. we'll reveal that later, uh, okay? Um, so, by one estimate I just bumped into online, the us has lost one in four newspapers in the, uh, one in four newspapers in the last fifteen years, most of them weeklies um, and there are now two hundred counties in America that have no newspaper whatsoever they 're news deserts. Um, Buena Vista County, your county, is not one of them. Um, it has the Storm Lake Times, as Ed was telling us. Will you talk a little bit about your path to what brought you to founding a newspaper, what was there before, and and how you ended up in journalism? There are a lot of young journalists in the room. Um,
3: well, thanks, uh, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here. and. Uh, 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 well, I went to I went to school at uh, the College of Saint Thomas in Saint Paul, Minnesota, and I was in the uh, post Water the first post Watergate class uh, of reporters. We were the second largest major at Saint Thomas then, uh, only behind it was an all men's school, only behind business, and. Uh, uh... i couldn't get a job at any newspaper but my brother had a, uh... was able to get me hired uh, in algona iowa uh... which was our ancestral hometown and so i worked started out working under my brother uh... in algona and uh... i worked at newspapers then in uh... uh Ames and mason city after that mason city iowa they're both daily newspapers algona was a twice a week newspaper and uh... So I kind of cut my teeth at Algona and then moved on to these dailies. John and I separated, and John went in to the... He had uh, left the Algona newspapers and had returned to work at uh, Buena Vista University. We say Buena Vista in Iowa. Pardon me. (laughs) Uh, And Madrid and Nevada. Uh, And uh, he'd gone into work in public relations trying to take a break from newspapers at Buena Vista, and... uh, He missed the soapbox, so he went into the Storm Lake Pilot Tribune one day, the incumbent chain-owned newspaper, and asked the 22-year-old publisher uh, uh, if he could buy the newspaper. And the publisher told John that he didn't know enough about community journalism to run a newspaper, and John had spent 20 years uh, in newspapers. And he got so mad, he walked out the door and decided right that day he was starting a newspaper in Storm Lake. And he called me and said, come home, you know, we're starting a paper. (laughs) And I said, look, take your TIA craft pension and hide amid the ivy vines. Nobody will ever find you. And forget about it. And then two months later, I was working with him in Storm Lake. And And this was in 1990? 1990, right. And uh, so we started out as a weekly... And then we went daily for a year and lost about $120,000. And then quickly reverted to twice a week. Uh, and we've been twice a week ever since. We had a high of about 4000 circulation, paid circulation. And now we're down to about
2: 2800 And so uh, lots of papers like yours have gone under. Yes. Uh, how, what's your business model? What has allowed you to survive, even, even as you may be struggling? Uh, eating rice. Uh, <laughs> well, for example,
3: right now John is uh, so, is collecting Social Security, so he works for free.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, you're really inspiring the journalists, the young journalists. The well, that's not an option until they're 62. Uh,
3: 67. Yeah, actually. Uh, and my son, Tom, gets paid Catholic school teacher wages. And, uh, and, I'm, uh, and so right, right now, community journalism is, is existentially challenged. And uh, uh, there are papers going down left and right because, you know, we've been Walmartized. Uh, we get an insert from Walmart once a quarter, maybe, and they eliminated 50 businesses that used to advertise with us we uh, We've lost the car dealers to uh, to Facebook, both the Ford and Chevy dealers. that's a hundred thousand in revenue uh, gone. Uh, and uh, so we felt pretty good that, uh, uh, because our circulation has maintained uh, you know pretty well, uh, and we are actually starting to tick up a little bit this year in cert- paid circulation, maybe ninety copies, ninety subscriptions on a base of 2700 and that's considered a major victory right now in journalism, in newspapering. And, uh, uh, and so, you, have,
2: you have a group of people that pay $70 a year.
3: Yeah, $70 a year uh, for a subscription, and so there's about 2,300 subscribers, and then we sell about another 400 copies on the newsstands twice a week at a dollar a pop. And so we made $2,000 this year. The year we won the Pulitzer, we lost 70000 uh, that 's when we lost our car dealers and furniture, and that 's really when we Facebook and, and Google really cut the rug out from under us and uh, uh, so we made two thousand dollars this year. It was a major victory we were about ready to spend it all on champagne and hot dogs <laughs> and then we got a notice from Wellmark Blue Cross Blue Shield that our insurance rates are going up for the second year in a row twenty four percent. Uh, before the Affordable Care Act, our rates were going up sixty eight and seventy eight percent a year uh, so it slowed down now to twenty four percent a year that 's forty two thousand dollars so we started out the year forty grand in the hole that 's a lot of seventy dollar subscriptions yeah
2: yeah,
3: and we frankly don 't know what we 're going to do we We always pull a rabbit out of our hat uh, but does it I pick know. up
2: in a in a presidential campaign year?
3: Or? No, they uh, they don't. They they just buy TV ads mm-hmm. and uh, uh, they just cut out print. And, uh, we get some ads from a certain candidate we endorsed.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: We wish we could have endorsed them all.
2: <laughs> well, you know the New York Times tried that. Right, right. There's a precedent for that. Yeah, there you go. I'm kind of curious. You're in a very, uh, you can tell us a little bit about the demographics of this region you're in, but your your editorials are fiery and very progressive. Uh, does that create business problems for the paper? Or do you lose advertisers over Well, we've you're lost writing? all
3: the advertising we can lose, I so, think. <laughs> and honestly, I kind of took the point of view. Uh, uh, these editorials were about surface water pollution in Iowa, and we were taking on basically Monsanto, Farm Bureau, and the Koch brothers. And uh, <laughs> so that's not a very good business strategy in Iowa. Uh, Did you
2: pay a price for that? Or, or, or no, because honestly,
3: we lost all our ag ads uh, 20 years ago. Uh, with consolidation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Monsanto's marketing and Pioneer are marketing directly. And by the way, when you win a Pulitzer, you can wear white socks with dark pants. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, we lost all our ag advertising 20 years ago with consolidation because they're marketing directly to farmers. You know, there's half as many farmers today as there were in 1980. And uh, they just, so there's so few of them, you can call them all on the phone. And, uh, and so we lost all that business. And, and so we really did kind of take the attitude that, uh, you know, what the hell? What do we got to
2: lose? And uh, so that uh, gave you a certain freedom.
0: Me and Bobby McGee, right? <laughs>
2: That's it. Um, But our image of, help us with the demographics of this town. Our image of Iowa is is that it's very white. Mm -hmm. And I gather that's changing. Yes. Um, What did your county, who did it vote for in the last election? Uh,
3: Well, the county voted for Trump. But Storm Lake proper voted for Hillary. Um, Storm Lake, uh, our elementary school, is about 90% immigrant. it's a meatpacking town, uh, so there's 3,000 families processing turkey and pork in Storm Lake. This is for Tyson. Tyson, yep. Yeah. And uh, uh, average wage is about $18 an hour, uh, non-union, and uh, so about 70% of those of our elementary school are Latino, and uh, and our congressman is a guy by the name of Steve King. We've we've heard of him, right? And uh, he's a racist uh, jerk. And uh, uh, Storm Lake is uh, you know is blue. It voted for Barack Obama twice. Uh, I think Obama won Buena Vista County the first time and lost it the second time, but. It's it's an aberration when a Democrat wins Buena Vista County. Storm Lake's vote is drowned out by uh, rigorously high turnout among uh, older Republican voters. And so we live in the 4th Congressional District, uh, 39 counties of northwest Iowa, uh, very conservative uh, American reform, that's Dutch reform, uh, Missouri Synod Lutheran, Roman Catholic, German, Swedish, Dutch and very conservative.
2: Uh, and what about the immigrant population? Are they eligible to vote? Do they vote? There's about 2,000
3: Latinos out of a universe, I think, of 11,000 voters in our county uh, that are uh, registered to vote. I think uh, there's, I can't remember the number, how many there are in the in the district, but there's a sizable Latino population in Sioux City, uh, which is also a meatpacking center. And uh, and these immigrants have really kind of have, uh, rejuvenated Storm Lake, were it not for them. Uh, you know, 67 of Iowa's 99 counties, two-thirds of our counties, have lost population every year since 1920. Wow. And so this, we're really turning the tide, and uh, so we've been very supportive of the immigrant population because uh, the town wouldn't exist were it not for them.
2: hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And you know, we automatically assume that uh, editorials attacking Big Ag or agribusiness would be unpopular among Trump supporters. But is that necessarily how the politics plays out?
3: No, I've never heard a farmer praise the chemical company, mm-hmm. you know, or the seed company that just raises seed prices 20 percent, uh, or told him he couldn't grow his own uh, soybean seed. Uh, so, I've, no, I've never heard a farmer say, God, I love Monsanto. <laughs> have you?
2: No. Yeah. No, once you talk to farmers, even the ones who use their products.
3: Right. Are they really, have to use their products. They,
2: they feel like they're, they're trapped by a monopoly. And they, I remember uh, reporting on farmers who were using um, GMO potatoes in Idaho. And they'd, talk, they'd take me to see their, their big dealer farmer. You know, the, the farmers right. are often dealers to their neighbors. And, uh, and there was a Monsanto minder with me, actually, in right. this interview. And I said, so uh, how do you feel about, uh, you know, Monsanto and these, this future of food? And he said, it's the future. you got to go with it. But it's one more noose around my neck. Right. And the woman from Monsanto turned white. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> no, there, I mean, there is, a, there is a lot of resentment of agribusiness. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the series that you uh, uh, wrote and won the Pulitzer for, because it seems to me it's going to sound a little granular at first, but it, it really gets at a lot of issues of agriculture in the in the Corn Belt and um, and climate change and and the alignment of forces in a state like Iowa. So. Just take us through the what this. There was one big story that basically you followed over the course of more than a year, I guess.
3: Yeah, it was a uh, well. Yeah, actually, it, it was a, a lawsuit that was filed by the Des Moines Water Works, which supplies drinking water to 500,000 Central Iowans, and we are upstream in northern Iowa, and uh, I have been ca- on a 20-year campaign to save our lake from sedimentation. Uh, God made it 24 feet deep. It had, we had gotten it down to 7 feet through uh, poor soil, soil stewardship. And uh, soil erosion was just filling, and it's filling in all these prairie pothole glacial lakes all over the, uh, Minnesota, Minnesota, South Dakota, and Iowa. And nobody wanted to talk to me about it. Um, I couldn't get any farmers to talk about it, agronomists, uh, the Department of Natural Resources. Uh, Iowa State University people nobody really wanted to talk about the fact that we were just uh, filling in our lakes with Iowa black gold. And Which is
2: running off of farms.
3: Running off of farms right and uh, but I had these pictures our pressman and I drove all over northwest Iowa taking pictures of these lakes just so that we'd have a record that they once existed and uh I took these pictures down to a meeting of the Iowa Environmental Council in 2013, and I was showing them, and this guy uh, sitting next to me on this panel said, we're going to sue your county. And it was Bill Stowe, who was the CEO of the Des Moines Water Works, I said, we're going to sue us for what? And he said, for polluting the Raccoon River with nitrate, uh, that is, from nitrogen fertilizer. And... Northern Iowa at one time was all slough and tall grass prairie, and my grandfather came in and drained a large share of it. Uh, they laid drainage tile about three feet underneath the ground and uh, buried it down there about 80 feet apart. And so water leaches down and it goes into this corrugated pipe, and that pipe leads to the river, and then it goes to Des Moines, where they built North America's largest nitrate removal system. Uh, Because we apply anhydrous ammonia to the land to grow corn, and that is nitrogen. And we also apply manure, which includes phosphorus and nitrogen. PNK, phosphorus, nitrogen, and potash. Those are the three critical ingredients for corn. And... uh, but in Iowa, we wear a suspender with our belts, so we'll put pig manure on top of anhydrous <laughs> ammonia just to make sure we're going to get 200 bushels per acre out of that corn. <laughs> and then about 30% of that nitrate loads ends up in the Raccoon and Des Moines rivers where it's creating a toxic stew in the Sailorville Reservoir just north of Des Moines, and they, have to, uh, they can't get rid of the cyanobacteria. Uh, nitrate levels are about... Uh, three times higher, at least, on average, than the recommended by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. The Raccoon River is running about 14 milligrams per liter uh, of nitrate, and uh, the University of Iowa recommends 5 milligrams per liter. Uh, in Rock County, uh, Minnesota, it, uh, which is just over the Iowa border, it's 70 milligrams per liter. And this doesn't only lead to blue baby syndrome, but it also, we believe, leads to Parkinson's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, and all sorts of neurological disorders. And every 2,000... I know three 2,000-acre farmers who have MS, Parkinson's disease, and one of my best friends who died of Lou Gehrig's disease, all, I believe, because of uh, their exposure to nitrate. And so the Des Moines Water Works sued Buena Vista, SAC, and Calhoun counties. Uh, These are all adjacent counties in northwest Iowa in the buckle of the Corn Belt. And uh, uh, over non-point, agriculture is exempted from the Clean Water Act, the 1972 Clean Water Act, because uh, it's non-point solution. It's not a sewer pipe. It's coming from disparate places. all sort. How can you regulate one farm and not the other? So there is no regulation. Agriculture is exempted from the Clean Water Act. But the Des Moines Water Works said, well, there is this drainage tile, this corrugated pipe underground that is leading to the Raccoon River. That is a point source of pollution. And uh, so it demanded that these strange creations under Iowa law called drainage districts, which are administered by the counties ninety nine counties, uh, and the trust the trustees of these drainage districts are the county board of Supervisors or county commissioners. but the only authority they have is to improve the drainage, so they the only authority they really have is to blow up beaver dens, and the Iowa Supreme Court ruled that since they had such limited authority, they couldn't be sued, and so it uh, struck out money damages, and then a federal district court judge shortly thereafter uh, dismissed the lawsuit because uh, the counties lacked standing to be sued and, but,
2: but along but, the way, they, had, they mounted a very elaborate right. defense, right and so that's really what you focused on?
3: So yes, so we, uh, my son. Tom, he's the spear catcher, and uh, I said, Tom, go to the, the, since this is a pollution lawsuit, the counties aren't going to have insurance coverage to cover their legal defense. And uh, so why don't you go ask the Board of Supervisors who's going to cover their legal, are, are they going to raise taxes, are they going to assess the drainage districts, which is assessing the farmers who have land in that drainage district? Uh, and so he went down and asked the Board of Supervisors, how are you going to pay your legal expenses? And they said, never mind, we have friends. And so Tom came back and reported that, and I said, go back and ask them who their friends are. <laughs> Take another arrow. And uh, it's, I love sending troops into battle. Uh, and, so he, and they said, oh, are you hard of hearing? We have friends, and it's none of your business who our friends are. So the citizens of Buena Vista County, the taxpayers of Buena Vista County, were being being, uh, represented, essentially, by unknown foreign interests. And we demanded to know who they were, and we uh, joined with the Iowa Freedom of Information Council. It's a nonprofit group uh, that tries to promote transparency in government and demanded that they release their list of donors And they refused and refused and refused. And through our own reporting, we found out uh, who the main donors were. Guess who? Monsanto, the Koch brothers, and Farm Bureau. And uh, uh, so we wrote a series of editorials over a two-year period urging, A, transparency, B, mediation between agriculture and the environment, and uh, and then C uh, moving toward a new sort of agriculture that's sustainable. Uh, and uh, uh, ten of those editorials from 2016, I thought, you know, this is kind of a David versus Goliath thing. By the way, the counties finally had to withdraw from the legal fund. I'm sorry. The counties finally had to withdraw from, from this legal fund because they realized they were in violation of the Iowa Open Records Law and that donors, in fact, are public records. And so they had to withdraw from the fund or release the names of the donors. So they withdrew from the fund. So we gained a Pyrrhic victory. And, uh, agri- and agribusiness, the agrochemical complex, got the lawsuit thrown out. And they spent uh, $1.7 million dollars. Of dark money doing it, but we were able to get that last hundred thousand anyway out of the federal court system. Um, But we made our point and we got them to stand down. And uh, and then I selected ten of these editorials and thought, you know, maybe I could enter these. We don't enter any contests, and so for the first time, I entered the Pulitzers. And I asked John if, if he'd give me fifty bucks, and he said, "Are you crazy? You know you're never going to win a Pulitzer and I said, well i've prayed to Saint John Bosco, patron saint of editors and pressmen, and uh, he's assured me that we have a good shot and so uh, he said, "All right, and he handed over the fifty bucks and on April ninth uh, of uh, 2017 they were uh, going to announce the Pulitzers and so I asked my wife Dolores if she gave me a haircut and, <laughs> and she said why and uh, this is on Sunday and I said well on Monday they're going to announce the Pulitzer Prizes and we're going to win it and she said uh, uh, why and I said well you know St. John Bosco uh, told me so I'm an Irishman and uh, so there are I don't know like 22 journalism categories for the Pulitzers, and editorial writing is number 18. And at 2 p.m. on Monday, I dialed into Pulitzer.org on a live stream, and they go through the list. You know, the New York Times investigative reporting, Wall Street Journal uh, explanatory reporting. And number 17, Peggy Noonan from the Wall Street Journal uh, for commentary. And I said, they're going to call my name next. And sure as hell, number 18. It said, Art Cullen from the Strong Light Times.
2: Yeah. You know, you could have you could have jinxed it with that haircut.
3: Yeah. And I shot through the stained ceiling tiles and said, Holy barnyard epithet, John, we won, we won. And he said, What did we win? He thought we'd won a spool of fishing line or something. And I said, with well, a freaking Pulitzer's, man. And, and for the first time in our lives, we hugged. <laughs> so,
2: that's true a, story. That's a heartwarming story. Right. But it's also a story that is a, just such a vivid reminder of what happens if you don't have this kind of local journalism. Right. What happens when it goes away?
3: Right. Well, uh, Monsanto, nobody. They just have... Well, I guess they're having their way anyway.
2: Yeah. Uh, but... But uh, there's a check.
3: But there's a check. And and the conversation changed in Iowa uh, because of it. How so? Well, uh, because, because of severe weather in the last three years since that lawsuit, uh, extreme rains that prevented planting and harvesting, everybody realizes that the reason we need more and more of these drainage tiles in northern Iowa so we can flood Cedar Rapids, give them 500-year floods every five years, uh, is because of increased precipitation in the upper Midwest, 5% per decade. Uh, Increased absolute humidity. Uh, And these torrential rains are coming down. We cannot... We can't go, so we've got to get rid of the water somehow. We just keep expanding this drainage system. And everybody realized this can't go on. And now the conversation is changing about how can we clean up our surface water and how can agriculture actually lead the way out of climate change, or the climate crisis, I should say. And it can. Uh, but that's a whole other...
2: Uh... Yeah, I want to get to that, too. But um, at least when I was last in Iowa doing reporting, which now goes back several years, you couldn't talk to farmers about climate change. Right. It just was not a topic. Uh, you could talk about extreme weather a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Um, but has that changed? I mean, is there is there an open conversation about climate change in the oh, role yeah, of agriculture?
3: Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, and uh, uh, people... It used to be there's a group called the Practical Farmers of mm-hmm. Iowa who uh, promote what we call sustainable agriculture, and then there's something that goes beyond that that's called
2: regenerative agriculture, and they're active in both those fields, as it were. Can we give us a quick definition of regenerative agriculture for people who haven't heard the term?
3: Well, uh, the idea is to restore soil health uh, through d- more diverse planting and grazing activities rather than relying on this monoculture of corn and soybeans planted in an oil base. Uh, and so you'll plant, uh, in a seven year rotation, you'll plant rye, succotash, uh, alfalfa, corn, soybeans, and then graze it, uh, you know, in grass. So, and you can eliminate chemical use, usage and eliminate fertilizers to a great degree by using livestock and manure and and by recreating the microbial life in the soil, uh, you don't need the same levels of nitrogen fertilizer that we're using. And um, so there's been a whole lot of research done at Iowa State University, uh, which is a great land grant school, uh, and uh, that shows, for example, by planting 10% of a field in uh, native prairie, Uh, you can eliminate 90% of nitrate runoff into the... And so farmers are paying attention to these things, and they don't want to lose 30% of their nitrogen loads, and they're realizing that this is costing them way too much money, and especially now with these huge flushes that we're getting with climate change, uh, the conversation is moving to how can we hold this water in place? How can I hold my fields in place? Tens of thousands of acres in southwest Iowa are washed out, never to be farmed in, in my lifetime uh, or, or even a younger person's lifetime. And, uh, and so everybody's getting it because the pace is picking up so fast. And you, you guys in California know when California and Australia are burning down and it doesn't stop raining in Iowa, something's wrong. we got to change. Yeah. And it is changing.
2: So you um, uh, convened a, a, a farm summit for the presidential candidates, right? You organized that. And um, uh, I don't know how many came. Um, five. Five of them came. And uh, I'm kind of curious, to w- what kind of ideas did they bring with them? I mean, this is the one time of the year where you get national politicians talking about farm policy, right. like, agricultural policy. And, and it's one opportunity for journalists to, to, to extract this from them and get them to think about it. Um, what did you hear there, and what was what was exciting?
3: Well, yeah, we we co sponsor with the Iowa Farmers Union and the and Huffington Post uh, what was called the Heartland Rural Forum in Storm Lake, and we had Elizabeth Warren, John Delaney, Amy Klobuchar, Julian Castro, uh, and who am I? For, uh, there's one other.
2: Uh, well, anyway, Bernie Sanders there.
3: Um, No, but, you know, senior moment. Um, (laughs) Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan. um, who was a fascinating... He really does get it. He really understands uh, uh, organic ag and and regenerative ag. But anyway, what impressed me most was uh, that... uh, was the audience of Farmers Union members uh, who... Were they're in a They're in a in a crisis right now in in the Midwest. Uh, with, uh, suicide rates are at their highest level since 1985, in the height of the farm crisis, uh, which drove a whole generation of farmers out of business. Wisconsin dairy farmers are drowning in a sea of milk, and Elizabeth Warren, I gotta say, came in there uh, with her Rosie the Riveter routine. Uh, <laughs> Uh, talking antitrust and regenerative ag and wanting to increase the size of the conservation stewardship program which promotes conservation on working lands 15 fold 15 fold that's 45 billion dollars uh, and I, uh, this is real you know and and. Uh, they were, they were talking on stage about uh, carbon sequestration in the soil and about paying farmers for environmental services uh, and making agriculture rather than a leading contributor to the climate crisis to make it the tip of the spear in the battle against uh, uh, global warming. And... Uh, that was impressive. And, and did that
2: resonate with the farmers in the room? Oh,
3: definitely, yeah. And they were talking about a farmer's bill of rights mm-hmm. uh, and breaking up Monsanto. And again, I've never heard a farmer say, I, I sure love consolidated seed and chemical companies. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so it's, it, it's a whole different conversation than we've been hearing since Earl Butts, the agriculture secretary in 1972, said plant fence row to fence row so we can feed the world. What he really meant was so we can get Monsanto into China.
2: Mm-hmm. That's what he did. <laughs> <laughs> so turning to politics yeah. a, little, a little further, um, it seems remarkable today that Barack Obama won Iowa twice, as well as the Iowa caucuses in his first election. And then last time around, Donald Trump won by 10%, yeah. nearly 10%. What happened between those two elections? Um, did, the, did the Democrats do things to lose the farm vote? Or, or the did, rural vote? Or, or the rural the, vote? Yeah. The, the,
3: um, well, first of all, Hillary Clinton never showed up. And uh, you got yes. The first rule of politics is to ask them for their vote. She never asked the Midwest for her vote. And uh, second, we were flipping the bird at at the at the country. Uh, that's why Steve King gets elected. That's why Donald Trump gets elected. They're saying, "All right, screw you, people. You've been flying over us and dumping on us." Uh, we've been in decline for 50 years now, and nobody cares if Waterloo, Iowa, slides off the map and John Deere shuts down. And, uh, and that explains a lot of it. And it's, there is a lot of angst in the Midwest about declining manufacturing wages, half of what they were in real terms in 1975. And Barack Obama came along and said, hope and change. Where was it? Mm -hmm. There was no, there was no change. He also made. He saved the economy. He was a little preoccupied with the 2008 (laughs) crash. Um, And so, so he, but, materially, while Wall Street got bailed out, and uh, the insurance companies got bailed out, uh, nobody bailed out Milwaukee or Flint, and, uh, and then Hillary just didn't show up, and uh, Bernie Sanders is showing up, and he's talking, uh, he's bringing in Michael Moore with his Detroit Tigers cap, and...
2: Uh, is that th- the right cap to wear in Iowa? Uh,
3: I'd prefer a Minnesota Twins cap, but okay. we have no professional team other than the Iowa Hawkeyes. Uh, but Bernie is, is actually talking about, uh, you know, a, revo- a political revolution uh, going beyond hope and change, which is what Donald Trump was talking about, was a political revolution of draining the swamp, and uh, we're going to bring those jobs back from Mexico and China. Yeah, right. And, uh, but we suckered for it because we were desperate.
2: And, uh, but how's that worked out? I mean, do people feel like Trump has...
3: Well, so he started a trade war with China, which right. uh, immediately caused layoffs at John Deere, the largest m- uh, employer in Iowa. They make tractors. And uh, uh, Harley-Davidson, he started company. a trade war with Europe that, uh, that really hurt Harley-Davidson in Milwaukee. And, uh, and then he started a trade war with China that that shave soybean prices by 30 percent. And so then he had to bail out, they have these so-called trade adjustment p- packages for farmers that are bigger than the uh, bailout of of Detroit uh, and uh, Still, farmers are blowing their brains out and hanging themselves in barns. Even with that size of bailout—twenty-three billion a year for two years—they're uh, still losing money. They've lost money seven years in a row, and uh, um, they're they're fed up. And I, for the life of me. Uh, I'll eat your left shoe if Iowa wins or goes Trump to Trump again. I, I just cannot really imagine. I don't think
2: it will happen?
3: I cannot imagine how when uh, dairy, the dairy industry is imploding in Wisconsin and Harley Davidson's laying people off and Snap-on Tools ain't selling any tools out of uh, Sheboygan. How are they, how are, how's Trump going to win that? This is the land of La Follette. Uh, Wisconsin. How's he going to win Michigan? Uh, How's he going to win Flint? I just don't. Will will, will African American voters sit on their hands in Flint like they did with Hillary? I don't think so.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, uh, there's a lot of anger. uh, And you know the bi-coastal economies. It looks it looks pretty good, you know, but you get between Colorado and Pennsylvania, and it's not very good. Uh, and uh, real wages are going down. Uh, you know, like I say, farmers are losing money uh, at uh, rates they haven't seen since the farm crisis, and uh, and California's on fire, and I think people are are. Uh, I I think it was an aberration. I'd like to think.
2: Mm, I would too. So like it or not, you're not only now a newspaper man, but a power broker in in national politics. Um, And although the circulation of the uh, Storm Lake Times is south of 3,000, candidates for president now have to come and kiss your ring. Well, I don't see a ring. Yeah, another yeah. part of you.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. Not much of that either. Now, there's—I don't think there's anyone in this room who can get uh, Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden on the phone. So, what is that like? You—you you interviewed 15 of the candidates. Yeah. They yeah. showed three of them showed up in Storm Lake last weekend. Right. Uh, yeah, so we had
3: Andrew Yang, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg.
2: So. So. How do you make use of that incredible opportunity that so few of us have?
3: Well, this time... Uh, of course, last time, nobody nobody came. Uh, <laughs> except for Martin O'Malley, and he played a fine guitar. Uh, but... Uh, uh, this time what I did is, is uh, I buttonholed every one of those candidates on a plan for regenerative agriculture, that is to lead the way out of this climate crisis. And every single one of them, led by Warren, came up with really substantial plans uh, uh, that Beto O'Rourke had a, uh, really was had gone to school on it. Pete Buttigieg has a very exhaustive uh, uh, regenerative ag plan and uh, conservation plan.
2: Do they all revolve around uh, paying farmers for environmental services? services right. Uh-huh. So for and capturing... shifting out of commodity subsidies to <laughs> do yes. that.
3: So we shift from. Tom Harkin, wrote the, uh, former senator from Iowa, wrote the Conservation Stewardship Program to replace crop insurance and the system of subsidies that we've had, uh, saying that this is going to be the future of, of food subsidy in the United States as conservation funding. And, uh, uh, yeah, so we're seeing a shift. Even Joe Biden is talking about tripling the size of the Conservation Stewardship Program, whereas... Warren's talking about expanding it by 15-fold. And we can, uh, by changing the land use in the United States, and we can actually mute the entire effect of the transportation system, in the, the vehicle system in the United States. We can suck that much carbon out of the air uh, if we, we plant grass and rye and succotash and let cattle... Roam the green hills. Um, We can solve this problem, you know, that that we can remove ten to fifteen percent of the carbon from the atmosphere just by uh, you know uh, changing land use patterns. So farmers can actually make money. So they don't they aren't indentured slaves to Monsanto. How do they make
2: money under this? Well, they they they're gonna there's a no
3: chemical costs, Mm -hmm. you know. No, uh, 20% premium to plant Roundup-ready soybeans, Roundup-resistant soybeans, or Dicamba-resistant soybeans. Uh, so now, even if you don't want to use Roundup or Dicamba, which are herbicides, uh, you have to buy the resistant, the herbicide-resistant soybeans from Monsanto because your neighbors are all spraying that stuff. And so to protect your soybeans, you have to make them Dicamba-resistant. Ever, they're all fed up with it. They're, they're not buying these, these dicamba-resistant beans anymore. They're not buying Bt corn, which is genetically modified to resist corn rootworms, uh, because they can't afford it. And and so they're finding that through regenerative agriculture, uh, they're making a th- uh, $1,000, where a farmer's losing a $1,000 under the current system because... Uh, they have no chemical costs, they have the same yields, uh, they suffer no yield loss, and they're getting, rather than getting paid th- three and a half dollars a bushel for conventional chemical, re- chemically raised corn, uh, you can get paid three times as much for organic corn at ten, 10 to thirteen dollars a bushel, as opposed to three and a half to four bucks a bushel. So they're, you know, you may think farmers are stupid, but they're not that stupid. And, and General Mills now is, uh, con- is shi- shifting all their contract- the contracted wheat acreage in the Dakotas to organic. Mm. And Kellogg just announced this week that they are eliminating the use of glyphosate, on any, uh, that's Roundup, on any of their contracted
2: acres. So you think we're really at an inflection point? Oh, that?
3: absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We can fix this. We can solve this problem.
2: That's the most encouraging news I've heard about agriculture from Iowa in a very long time. So I wanna turn, um, in the last few minutes we have, and I'll be turning to you for questions soon, and students first, Um, I'd love to recognize them first. So we keep hearing that the Iowa caucus voter is a very pragmatic creature, that's the story that reaches to, uh, to us, and that electability is their first consideration when they're looking at this democratic field because of the importance they feel, of, of defeating Trump. And yet the latest polls all show that I was feeling the burn. Right. Um, I have, I, is that a paradox? Um, he, to me, he seems like has electability problems nationally.
3: Well, I thought Trump had electability problems.
2: <laughs> <coughs> Touche. Um, so I don't know.
3: Uh, all I know is when I, I was at a rally Sunday for Bernie and I saw... Uh, guys in Pioneer Seed Corn caps there that are 60 years old that you never thought would be be anywhere near a Democratic socialist, and uh, I, I, there's some Smiths. These are
2: these are Trump voters.
3: Trump. These these are not necessarily Trump voters, but they're they're uh, they might have voted for Trump. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they are certainly not. They don't wear Birkenstocks. <laughs> and uh and there was people- young people there, and people of color were there and and Latinos are so scared uh of of being deported, even citizens who are registered to vote just don't show up to see these candidates they just don't show up in public period because they're so afraid uh and when you live on, under Steve King's reign of terror uh you just don't show up, and Julian Castro confirms it. He says they aren't showing up anywhere he goes. So they won't show up at the caucus either. Caucuses. No, they won't no. show up. At the, probably won't show up at the caucuses.
2: Yeah.
3: And uh, also, the caucuses are not something that Latinos would be uh, accustomed to. Uh, it's a, it's kind of a curious uh, creation. About it's designed to be a party-building exercise and Latinos aren't necessarily ones to shove their way around in a room.
2: Well, and, it's a very public event. Yeah. Everybody is moving to you don't just vote, right? Explain how it works.
3: Yeah, so um it, it's uh it's 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 a delegate selection process. It's it's not really a primary. And so you go in and you have to have each campaign needs to have 15% support in that precinct. And there's four four precincts in Storm Lake. And so we'll each go go to a church or a fire station, and you'll be sitting with your neighbors, and I'm uh, sitting in one camp, and Michael's sitting in another camp, and you have to have 15% support to be viable. So you
2: you vote, excuse me, you vote by going to the corner. Yeah, you go to a corner
3: and you you go sit under the Bernie So everybody
2: knows who you voted for.
3: Yeah, so you're for Bernie over here and you're for Mayor Pete over here and you're for Warren over here. And then Yang doesn't have 15%, so then the Bernie people go over and say, we'll give you a delegate to the state convention if you'll come over. And then they go to the uncommitteds and say, you give us half of your uncommitteds at 30%. And you'll still have a viable, uncommitted delegation for the state convention where you'll get wined and dined as an uncommitted. And then at the national convention where you'll get wined and dined as an uncommitted. So this is all part of a political process that very few people outside of Iowa understand. But it's all about party building and getting people involved in the county conventions, the district conventions, and state conventions. So you start trade and votes, trade and support, You come with us, you can break loose if you got 15% at the district convention. You can break loose and go back to Yang. And so all these deals are made, and uh, it's really fascinating. So your second
2: choice is very important. Second choice
3: is very important, and Warren in the Iowa poll conducted by the Des Moines Register uh, is leads in second choice. Um, So when you see the polls, Bernie had the, the lead in the last Iowa poll, uh, and uh, uh but nobody pays attention or very few people pay attention to that second choice and so there about uh, half of uh of uh that caucus in all over the state is going to be undecided on Monday night and because either their their group isn't viable or they went in uncommitted and uh It it seems like they'll break down evenly rather than falling in one direction, like saying falling to Bernie. Uh, Everybody assumes that Bernie has some ceiling in Iowa uh, because those Biden people just couldn't bring themselves to go with Bernie. Uh, And uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see how it shakes out Monday night. Elizabeth Warren has by far the best organization in the state. Although Bernie seems to be turning them out, and Pete Buttigieg has reputedly that the, uh, he's worked the rural areas really hard, and he has uh, as almost
2: as big a campaign organization as Warren. And uh, will you tell us who you endorsed and what you think is going to happen?
3: Yeah. So uh, on December 11th, uh, we endorsed Warren, uh, and uh, so now our team. <laughs> Our TV ad is airing in Iowa now says endorsed by the New York Times and the Storm Lake Times. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a big shot, see. And uh, you made I've arrived. And, uh, At least you
2: made up your mind, unlike the. Yeah. New York yeah. Times. Right.
3: Right. And we picked her because, again, she she. Re- she really led the way in uh, the discussion of agriculture, rural affairs, antitrust. And uh, and as I told the Boston Globe, you know, you can look out for Boston. We got to look out for, for Storm Lake. And when it comes to rural America, there is no candidate who is her rival, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, she calls herself Betsy from Oklahoma. And there's more Oklahoma in her than there is Harvard,
2: I'd say. That's a lucky thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's turn to the audience. And, uh, and... Thank you. wait for a microphone. Julie, there is, see that hand up there in the red shirt? Thank you.
0: Thanks for your reporting and everything. Um, so, I uh, haven't heard a lot about regenerative farming uh, from the Midwest and from you know the central part of America until actually last week when I heard about a farm called Coyote Run in Lacona, Iowa, uh-huh. run by a farmer named, I think, Matt Russell. Matt Russell, right. Yeah, and uh, um, he brought Biden, O'Rourke, yep. uh, Kamala Harris, and it sounds like People are coming to... There's a
3: loose conspiracy going
1: on.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And I I haven't heard about this. In fact, you know, 10 years ago when I I read Omnivore's Dilemma, I just kept...
3: He wrote that, you know. Uh,
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) I just kept reading about how, you know, we're just locked by Monsanto and oil getting into our soil and everything... My question is how much percentage wise do you think farmers are coming on to this whole idea of regenerative farming in Iowa and in you know these states
3: yeah what i what i, I as usual, one of my thoughts trailed off. I was talking about the practical farmers thirty years ago, they were considered freaks, uh, and they would get twenty people at their annual field days now they're getting. 1,000 people mm. at their field days. And I've seen crowds of 150 in northwest Iowa in Steve King's backyard. Uh, and, again, these are these are guys with their backs up against the wall, and they're looking for anything they can do to cut costs and stay alive. And they're showing up at these field days interested in winter rye and uh, holding nitrogen in place. And You mean through cover crops? Through cover, cover, cover crops, planting cover crops and... Uh, and uh, uh, so it's it's changing rapidly because of cost structures and extreme weather and uh, and i I think that uh, uh, most farmers i I would say in fact, a rural life poll showed that more sixty percent of Iowa farmers are, would do more conservation practices if their landlord would let them. The problem is the people living in California who own all that Iowa farmland. They like those checks.
2: And why? Why would they be against conservation practices? Because
3: they don't understand. Uh, they they think that if you spray it with Roundup and plant corn, automatically you make money. Uh huh. And it's a lot. And you you cannot tell that uh, widow that, hey, we're going organic on your farm. You know or go in and try and tell the banker that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, now the bankers are starting to get up on it. Now, finally, you know, Iowa State University is, uh, is even the extension service is now preaching it. And although the Iowa legislature did eliminate funding for the Aldo Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State, the first sustainable ag center in the country, and they eliminated the funding uh, for it just because of the Des Moines Water Works lawsuit, just out of spite. Mm.
1: Um,
3: so the
2: Farm Bureau, which is not identical with farmers' interests, as, as you know, but a lot of people on the coast assume when they hear Farm Bureau, that's farmers talking. Um, they're,
3: it's a, it's a, an insurance company.
2: Yeah, exactly, right. I mean, you, to get their insurance policy, you have to join. Right. And they tend to represent the interests of agribusiness more Right. Than farmers. But nevertheless, they're still fighting a lot of these changes that you're talking about, right. yes?
3: They are, but even the Farm Bureau at one time was advocating the idea of carbon sequestration and paying farmers for environmental services. Um, and uh, it's pretty hard to say to a Farm Bureau member, uh, would you like a check for uh, an acre, that's $100 more than you'd make anyway uh, just to do nothing but plant grass. I think every every farmer would say, I'll take that check. And uh, uh, so I think in answer to your question, most farmers want to do the right thing if they only could. But they're locked into this ag supply chain. uh, And, you know, the bankers are in there, the landlords are in there, Monsanto's in there, Farm Bureau... Uh, all the farm publications you know you gotta have 200 bushel corn the only way to get there is with Roundup and nitrogen and hydrous ammonia which is you know a byproduct of petroleum you know the petroleum industry so uh, most farmers want to do the right thing and they're miscast as these enemies of, of uh, sound stewardship um, but the fact is that they don't own the land you know
0: do you think that most farmers know what the right do you think that most farmers know what the right thing is now like no but
3: they're getting there real fast yeah. and uh, um, and this campaign has has sharpened the focus but what 's really sharpened the focus is these extreme weather this extreme weather, and when you can't plant when you can 't harvest or plant your corn, uh, it gets your attention real quickly, and they realize we 've got to do something different, and uh, uh, we 've got to be able to hold the soil they 're starting to realize now because they 're valuing land now in a different way that uh, because of Uh, it's depletion, it's soil depletion, and so it's actually showing up in land values now. Wheat yields are declining 5% a year in China because of soil degradation. And protein content in Iowa corn uh, tests is showing steady declines uh, because of soil degradation. And Everybody's getting onto that. Everybody's starting to learn about it now.
0: Sorry, one last follow-up. No, no. I think we uh, got to move or, to somebody else. Car- Thank carbon you. sequestration of soil. Do they know about that? Uh, yes. Do we have another question? Yeah, in the
2: back there.
0: Hi, Art. Hi. Can you talk a little bit about the work to? Um, Create a moratorium on uh, large animal farms that's happening in Iowa right now. There's a moratorium they're working on. They've been talking about
3: moratoriums on hog confinement buildings in Iowa since heck was a pup. And uh, it's not going to happen. And uh, uh, nothing is more sacred in Iowa than a confined hog. And uh, (laughs) it's just. It's just not going to happen. What is going to happen is, I'm convinced that the entire livestock confinement system is going to fall under its own weight to disease, uh, and uh, because we we can't use the antibiotics like we used to, uh, and there, there was a uh, avian flu virus that swept through Minnesota, South Dakota, and Iowa in 2000. And, and 15 uh, that killed 5 million laying hens in in Buena Vista County alone and uh, wiped out entire, uh, you know, wiped out the turkey industry in Minnesota. Completely just wiped it out and uh, it's going to happen again and people who ignore the 1918 flu pandemic uh, think it can't happen. But it did happen in 2015. And it's happening right now in China with you know these and the African swine flu, and uh, you just can't have that kind of density uh, anymore and and sustain it. it. So the moratorium nature is going to impose the moratorium, well before the legislature does.
2: Yes. quick follow-up to that. Um, why is there a willingness to sort of see uh, a difference in, in like changing practices in growing corn and growing
3: winter rye and all of that, but not in the livestock industry? What's the difference? Well, uh, the farmer doesn't own the hogs. Uh, they're owned by the Chinese and the Brazilians, and uh, Smithfield is owned by the Chinese. They own 40% of the hogs in Iowa. Um, and that's why. It's because uh, the livestock system is not controlled by any producers. It's controlled by, you know, producers on the ground. It's controlled by the Chinese, JBS out of Brazil, and Tyson, uh, and to a lesser extent Cargill and uh, and a few other players. But uh, that's why confinements, uh, it's all part of the, integra- the vertical integration of the livestock industry. And, so the and,
2: farmers are growing hogs under contract to those companies.
3: Yeah, so the right, so, so the farmer goes out and gets a loan on a building uh to fill it with uh, Smithfield hogs, uh Chinese hogs and uh who are in a trade war with. And uh and then he takes out a loan and by the time that building is shot, uh he's paid off the loan and has nothing to show for it. But he got about Uh, fifteen to twenty grand a year for managing three hog buildings, uh, with a thousand hogs each. So, uh, he's in control of. He's just in control of the light switch. (laughs) (laughs) And so, farmers aren't making those decisions about confinement that's being made in Springdale, Arkansas, and and
2: Beijing. But where's the local political support for sustaining that system? It doesn't seem to offer much to uh, people in Iowa.
3: Well, they own the Iowa legislature. Um, uh-huh. I mean, there's there's uh, something called state capture uh, that the Koch brothers dreamed up through the uh, an outfit called the American Legislative Exchange Council.
2: Alec.
3: Alec, and they uh, they've taken over the Iowa judiciary, the uh, the. Uh, they unseated three Iowa Supreme Court justices for voting in favor of gay marriage. And that was the, the work of outside, these outside interests. And they, they've taken over the legislature, the governorship. They did the same thing in Wisconsin. And Wisconsin started to fight back and elected Tony Evers, thank God, in the last election over Scott Walker. And, but they did it in Kansas. Uh, they did it in Iowa. They did it in Wisconsin. And that's how they, and then they take over the state university systems. Now, Monsanto is the main funder of the genetics program at Iowa State University, and it's the leading, you know, crop genetics program in the country besides Berkeley. And uh, uh, so they can they control the whole mm-hmm. system. Yes.
1: Hi. Thanks for being here.
3: thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought too critically about um, the role of a newspaper's presidential endorsement until New York Times split their vote last week, and I'm wondering if you could share some insight historically, practically, is a newspaper's presidential um, uh, endorsement a public service? Could it be a disservice? And does your answer change when a paper's circulation is a couple thousand versus hundreds of thousands or millions?
3: Well, first of all, um, I question how much endorsements matter. Um, I'd point out President Bill Bradley, who we endorsed, President George McGovern. Um, And uh, so, and I don't know who, I suppose the New York Times endorsed Hillary, didn't they? Uh, We did. (laughs) and uh although she never came
2: <laughs> she's still feeling that
3: <laughs> yeah i'm i don't get over that and uh um, but i think it's still worthwhile to do it because you know we do get uh, uh a special seat and Um, I got to spend, you know, 45 minutes interviewing Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. And so it's fun to do. And I think we have an obligation to say, look, we got this front row seat and here's what we think. Uh, And I also am old fashioned enough to believe in institutions and that institutions are important. And I still believe that a community newspaper or a state newspaper is an institution and has special responsibilities. And so whether it matters or not, it's important to do. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh,
0: okay. Okay. Thanks. Um, would you comment on the trade deal with China and whether it will? How much time you got? Uh, <laughs> 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 well, on whether it's will operate to be
2: that bailout um, for the Midwestern farmers to enable them to continue agriculture as is because China's obligated to buy so much American produce?
3: Well, okay. First of all, Trump said that uh, they were going to buy $50 billion worth of agricultural products. You better buy bigger tractors and more land. And you know how much the soybean markets went up that day? They went down nine cents because they think he's a liar and they know he's a liar and they don't and that China's only bought 17 billion uh or 20 I think maybe anyways about half that much is their record year which is 2015 I think And they found a new source of supply. Yeah, now they're ripping up the rainforest, burning down the rainforest in Brazil so they can grow or graze it and then use the savannas to grow soybeans. And we've lost those markets forever. Uh, And uh, so what Earl Butt started, Donald Trump ended. Uh, And uh, those markets aren't coming back for for, for those export markets, and that's a big part of why farmers are paying attention to re, to, to a different way of being paid for the, for environmental services rather than banking on exports. You know, 30 percent of our uh, dollar it comes from the export markets, and uh, we we just lose at the game every year, and uh, we've been losing at it since 1972, uh, and. We have half as many farmers and twice as much exports. And what do we, So what do we got to show for it? Nothing. And so they're saying, OK, maybe there is a different way to do this. Maybe if we got paid for environmental services rather than exports, uh, uh, maybe that makes more sense. And they're starting to think that way.
2: OK.
1: Uh, make- Hi.
0: Thank you for being here first. Um, Well, thank you. I'm wondering if you think it's uh, possible to attain this land change use that you've been talking about towards
1: um, regenerative agriculture without changing uh, land ownership and the business model of agriculture and only with market incentives and policy?
3: Yeah, basically, if you bid a dollar more For grass over corn, they'll plant grass. Uh, The landlord will. If the if the landlord if the farm manager tells that widow lady in California that you're going to make ten dollars more planting grass instead of corn, and the banker says it's okay, uh, they'll plant grass. And it's and the bankers are figuring out that uh, if they want to keep their assets in order, their loans. Uh, then they're going to tell these farmers to cut their chemical costs. And they're starting to have those conversations. They have about one more year before we start to get into another full-fledged farm crisis. And those conversations are going on right now uh, with farmers about how are, what are you going to do next year to break even. And, and uh, we're probably going to have those conversations with our banker ourselves this year.
2: Um, <laughs> but but everything depends on uh, having a new, very different, radically different kind of farm bill, right? That's that right. changes. We already pay farmers a, a, an enormous amount but of money. But they're
3: doing it now, uh, even with the, the meager subsidies that they do get. Uh, they're doing it just to cut their chemical costs because they're seeing these guys that are planting cover crops and they're completely eliminating their use of herbicides. Just by planting winter cover crops like rye, and you plant it in the fall, in say September, so it holds that soil and water in place in the winter. In the fall and winter flushes, and uh, and they're finding that uh, that by using these cover crops, they don't need to fertilize in the fall or uh, spray herbicides in the spring, and that they can get in a lot faster um, because they don't have to do all that. Uh, poisonous work.
2: Julie? Yes.
1: Hi. Yeah, thank you again so much for being here. Um, I'm also really curious about regenerative agriculture and um, I, like, immediately kind of wonder um, what that will feel like as, like, for consumers. Healthier food.
3: (laughs) Um, There's a book called Omnivore's Dilemma. (laughs) That talks about the uh, damaging effects of feeding cattle, uh, corn, and feedlots, which, by the way, are unsustainable. I've been to Dodge City, Kansas, and Garden City, Kansas. And, you know, you go into Dodge City, and there's 10,000 steers laying right outside the city limits, and it smells like burnt hair and cow shit. And, uh, and the Ogallala Aquifer is going dry and they aren't going to be able to just ship in corn to Kansas anymore and feed those cattle at Dodge City. Those cattle are going to have to move north where there's water, and that, that, that's going to be Canada, Minnesota, Buffalo, New York, uh, and uh, uh, because the Ogallala Aquifer will be drunk dry within 20 years. Uh, that, and that, yeah, that slakes the thirst of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, the entire, you know, the Old West and uh, the cattle trails. And uh, so that party's over. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's all going to be forced on, and it's being forced on us very rapidly right now and in ways that we don't even appreciate.
2: So time for one more question.
1: Hi. Um, again, thank you for being here, both of y'all. Um, so you talked a moment ago about uh, how you believed the import- believed in the importance of local papers. And maybe there's not an answer to this question, but what's the next rabbit out of the hat in terms of keeping your paper alive?
2: <laughs> I was asking
3: Michael Pollan about that this afternoon.
2: And did I have a good answer? No. No, he
3: didn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, what, what, we're tr- what the entire industry is trying to do is to switch to, a, to reader revenue, and that is asking you to pay for a subscription. And uh, it's working pretty well for the category killers like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they can make a fair amount of money selling a, a $10 subscription or a $20 subscription. We can't. We need a $100 subscription because our universe is that much smaller. And uh, it's pretty tough getting a hundred bucks out of somebody for a newspaper, and especially when half the town can't read English, and or Spanish for that matter. They come to the United States with a third grade education and can't read uh, in their native language, and uh, so it's really tough in Storm Lake. And I don't know what the hell we're going to do. We're fortunate because I got lucky and won a Pulitzer. And so I have some opportunities to do stuff that, that my neighbors down the road don't have, like, come here." And uh, But it's an existential crisis, and I can't say that enough. Uh, um, we don't know We're, We don't know if we'll be in business uh, after this year, honestly. And uh, uh, there's a lot. I have a friend in Carroll, Iowa, very similar to uh, an hour away from Storm Lake. At one time, it had the highest household penetration of any newspaper in America. And now he doesn't know if he'll be open in a year. And uh, we don't know what the answer. I could get a grant to go to Mexico and do a story. Uh, long-form reporting story for the Atlantic, but uh, I can't get a grant to pay my son Tom to cover the County Board of Supervisors.
2: There you go. There it is. Well, let's hope you keep doing what you're doing because it's incredibly important. We're going to try. Yeah. (laughs) And thank you for filling us with hope, though, on on some other issues besides journalism. (laughs) I never thought farming would look more promising than journalism. But but perhaps we've reached that point. And uh, will you all join me in thanking Art Cullen? Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Berkeley Talks a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.